Chasing Lights Chapter 9 What about hunting and fishing? Well, the correct pronunciation of those words, whether you are in the Alleghenies or the Matanuska Valley, is hunting and fishing. I don't think the cultures around hunting and fishing are any different from place to place. Fundamentally, it's about harvesting the wild bounty of the land without farming it first. Now, it it can be problematic when it's perceived as a test of one's manliness or toughness, but often it is. It can be wonderful when it connects men and women to the life and death story of the wild, and ultimately it's practical. A single animal can provide for an entire family throughout the winter. Now, like any place where hunting is common, most Alaskan basements or garages have a chest freezer filled with game. Eating at a friend's house, I had moose burgers, caribou sausage, and bear stew all the time. People would bring wrapped up cuts of meat as hostess gifts. I remember listening to neighbors compare their butcher's skill at rendering an entire moose and their taxidermist's artistry with the mounting of a head and antlers on a plaque. When I was in fifth grade, the girls and boys were separated for a special course. The girls went to one room to learn about sex and their changing bodies. The boys went to another room to learn gun safety. We were instructed on how to clean guns, how to take them apart, and how never to point them at anyone else. We viewed an educational film that showed two boys going out to the wilderness together with a gun, and in the film, they were fooling around, laughing and shooting, and, and then one accidentally shot the other. Most of us wanted to be in the room with the girls at that point. Now, when we started spending summers at Lake Tyone, guns were a big part of our lives. My brother and I shared a 22 caliber rifle, but there were a few other guns as well. A 12-gauge pump-action shotgun was always on the gun rack. It was fully loaded. The shells alternated between a large single slug and buckshot. The theory was that by quickly shooting both, you could slow down or even stop a bear. Now, when target shooting, that gun, it sounded like a cannon. And a slug once accidentally chopped a mid-sized birch tree in half. There were also a couple of handguns, as well as a hunting rifle and a smaller gauge shotgun. And for target practice, we would all go with Dad out to the landing field, set up some targets, and shoot away. It was fun. It was addictive. We were mostly careful, and my father was very strict about protocols, which we appreciated even when we were in the wrong. We shot paper targets and then cans and bottles, which were much more satisfying. When we hit the cans, we immediately knew as they flew off the tree stump. And at some point we discovered that if we filled the cans with water, 
they blew up when they were hit. And like many other boys, blowing stuff up seemed like the best possible thing. I admit that I still enjoy watching explosions in action movies from time to time. Why is that? You know, there is a, a primal instinct for that, which drives our behavior, and it should probably be studied a little more closely. Maybe if we understood it, we could all blow up fewer things. Now, watching my brother shoot was always something. With the pistol, he would put it back in the holster on his thigh, then pull it out to shoot the can. Not fast, like a movie gunslinger, that would be too dangerous, but he seemed to be training the muscles. He was a great shot even then. Everyone talked about bear attacks, but the real threat in the bush was other people. People in Alaska can be wonderful, but it is also a state of misanthropes. At the end of the day, most people move to Alaska to get away from other people. And those that feel otherwise are more likely to stay home in the lower 48. Now, the impulse to get away from others is then compounded by the psychological stress that's caused by isolation. Consider as well that alone in the middle of nowhere, there are no social norms, police, or state troopers to hold anyone back from their most violent impulses. Everyone is armed. A stranger is dangerous. Now, during hunting season, we might see a boat steer towards our dock, and Dad would then strap on a pistol and pick up the bear gun before walking slowly down to the dock. And whoever was approaching would then steer away from the dock and quickly leave. We were fortunate that it worked so well and never had any trouble. I suspect that many hunters wanted to squat in a cabin instead of sleeping on the floor of a tent. And once they knew someone was home, a tent was just fine. Hunting season was frightening, and not just for wild game. The sound of gunfire was frequent, not unlike Chicago during the 4th of July when gun owners shoot into the air to celebrate. Unfortunately, the shooters don't realize that the bullets will fall back to earth, usually at the same speed they left the gun, able to create horrific tragedy. In the bush, frustrated with no animal sightings, many hunters started to just shoot for the hell of it. Trees, rocks, and anything that they could see was shot at. Sometimes our cabins were used for distance target practice. Sometimes a boat on the water. A caretaker was paddling on the water once when a bullet hole just appeared above the waterline. Many had not come to the bush for hunting. Instead, they spent most of their time drinking and shooting. With so many people armed, there was an imperative to match it. My mom wore a 357 Magnum on her hip, not just for discouraging visitors, but when she was berry picking away from the house as well. Now, she was a pretty good shot, and at one point, she took out a squirrel that was stealing all the insulation from our house. Now, there's a wonderful photo of her with the gun strapped to her jeans that looked completely natural. Packing heat in the wilderness probably wasn't something she imagined when she was going to boarding school in Switzerland in the 1950s. In the 1970s, there weren't any videotapes, much less digital streaming. 
Alaskan villages didn't have movie theaters like Anchorage, but they could rent movies from central film distributors. Anyone, whether it was a village or an individual, could rent a film projector and reels of film, usually older movies from the catalog. One year at Christmas, we rented three different movies and showed them all on a white sheet that we hung on the wall. I loved seeing those old film canisters all stacked up on the floor. And if we really liked the movie, we would re-watch the third reel for fun. There was a lawyer in town who was an avid gun collector. He invited a bunch of families, including us, to his Valentine's Day party one year. And he rented a special movie for all of us to see, The St. Valentine's Day Massacre. As a special treat, once the movie was over, everyone got to hold his Thompson submachine gun, also known as a Tommy gun. There were kids all over the house laughing, screaming, and buzzing from the chocolates. And with the sounds of automatic gunfire and Bruce Dern screaming as he shot to pieces on the screen and chocolate smeared on our hands, faces, and clothes, we all jumped up and down, clamoring for the chance to touch the weapon in the host's hands. The normality of guns made me nervous, in part because they're so compelling, so attractive. At one point, my father had a client that paid him in guns, and we briefly had a closet full of them waiting to be sold. I remember shooting a Beretta automatic handgun. Unlike the other revolvers we had, it felt comfortable in my hand shooting. It was a pleasure, and it made me feel so much more competent a marksman than I am. When I put it down, all I wanted to do was pick it up again, just to feel it in my hands again. When Dad announced that we were going to the shooting range one day, my brother and I both wanted to carry the rifle. We took it down from the gun rack and struggled with each other to hold the gun. A classic, mine, no, mine, argument ensued. Each of us were trying to pull it back from the other's grip. At some point, the gun slipped, and the butt landed on the couch in front of us. Neither of us had a finger on the trigger, but somehow the gun fired. Even a small caliber bullet can make a tremendous amount of noise inside a house and we could hear it embed itself in the ceiling. My brother and I looked at each other in stillness for a bit, shocked by the sound, then overwhelmed by what the sound meant. We were both untouched, and it quickly dawned on us how fortunate we were. There was nothing to say. How many times have struggles like that between two kids ended differently. How close did we get to the cautionary film in the school gun safety course? My feelings about guns today were formed in that moment. I learned that guns are designed to do one thing, kill. And part of that design functions through the seductive power it has over anyone who holds them. Very little skill, practice, or effort is required to fire a round. Something as simple as an accidental bump can kill. How many people are truly prepared to keep their minds and bodies balanced 
as they hold a killing tool in their hands. For that matter, am I prepared? When I look back, it is surprising to realize how almost all serious injuries my brother and I experienced were within a mile of a hospital. The rusty nail that went through my tennis shoe and my foot. A a shot was administered a half hour later. My brother shattered his bone spur a block or two from the hospital. The same for the onset of my bone infection, where I was scheduled for surgery to amputate my foot due to the infection. But on the day of the surgery, it was apparent that intravenous penicillin was actually doing its job. And at the last minute, my foot was saved from amputation. If any of those things had happened in the bush, there's a chance we wouldn't have done quite so well. One winter, we drove out to Moose Pass, a little way past Girdwood on the Kenai Peninsula. The snow in the pass was perfectly white and deep. The sky was also white, so much so that it was difficult to see the horizon or shadows on the snow. In the back of the truck was our snow machine, so we could spend some time riding through the pass. It was a popular area for snow machining, and there were a few other folks out there as well. Now, getting the machine down from the pickup was always difficult. It was a heavy machine and hard to maneuver the front skis or the rear track. We all got it down only after a lot of grunting. My brother was the first to ride. He put on his helmet, turned the key, revved the engine, then sped out of the parking area. Almost immediately, he went over a sheer drop of 10 to 15 feet. The machine landed nose first, and my brother hit the handlebar. The whiteout had obscured the drop completely from him. When he stood up, his face was covered in blood. As usual, he was able to wince through the pain, but it was clear that it wasn't easy. My father knew what to do. There was no time for us to reload the snow machine. There was a friend with uh, room in their truck for me and the machine, so I stayed behind while Dad sped to Anchorage with my brother. I would not have been surprised if his driving turned the two-hour trip into a single hour. As usual, he healed quickly and well. Back at school, the two of us had a very different experience on the playground. I was picked on and quite frequently shoved, punched, and kicked by larger boys. Worried for me, my father signed me up for judo classes. And in the class, all the experienced students would line up on one side of the room and all the inexperienced students on the other. And then we would move down the line and I would then get thrown repeatedly. In other words, I went to a special class to get beaten up systematically by guys who actually knew what they were doing. I hated it. I didn't understand how this was going to help me stop the beatings at school. But my brother understood intuitively how to deal with fights. Gentle as he was with everyone and everything, If someone wanted to fight, he still gave it to them. When I was threatened, I tried to avoid getting hit, even in judo class. When he was threatened, he accepted that he was likely to get hit. And instead of hiding from it, why not face it? When the pain and fear is faced, 
it's possible then to act and maybe even throw a punch that discourages the opponent from continuing. At the time, I didn't appreciate this Zen-like wisdom of my brother. He was shorter and younger than me. How, how could it be that he was stronger and braver? And how could I ever be as strong and brave as he was? It seemed impossible to work past my own fear or to stand up for myself as I was told to do by so many. One afternoon, I, I came home from school alone. And on a grass-covered rise next to a house, there were three kids yelling and threatening another guy. I started to walk across the street to avoid them, feeling the usual fear in the pit of my stomach. But at some point, I, I realized that the other guy was my brother. Outnumbered and outmatched, there was no way that even he could outfight them. I stopped moving away from the fight. Hey, you! Leave him alone! I yelled out. Fuck you! You gonna stop us? Their response, strangely, turned my fear to anger. Yes, I yelled, and without thinking, ran up to the lead guy to push him down to the ground. Now, before I got to him, he hit me in the face so hard that I fell. It was really painful. I, I still don't know how it was that I didn't get a black eye or broken nose from that hit. But I got back up and then got hit by all three of the kids. Stomach, back, head, whatever part of me they could reach, got hit. With me face down on the ground, trying not to cry, they eventually got tired of hitting me and left. My brother then helped me up. We walked home together, quietly. I was ashamed. Forty years later, I apologized to him on the phone for not being a better brother, not brave enough, not strong enough, not focused enough on what he needed. I believed that I had let him down, but he thought otherwise. What are you talking about? You got beaten up for me. You protected me. It was hard to hear him say that because it required me to rewrite the story in my head to finally understand what he had been showing me since we were seven years old. The first step is to accept the inevitable beating. Only then can life be lived. I cried when he told me that. At Lake Tyone, my brother and I didn't have to fish on the beach anymore. With small boats at our disposal, we could always go fishing in the lake. When we went to our favorite fishing spot up the lake, we would travel with a frying pan. And once there, instead of fishing right away, the first order of business was to start a fire. The pan would be pulled out, butter thrown in, then we would fish. The first time we went there, I couldn't believe it. Every other cast of the line would yield another catch. It wasn't quite fishing, really. It was more like ordering lunch. In 15 minutes, we were ready to eat. As wonderful as it was, 
It probably increased our impatience though with uh, normal fishing, where it might take 20 or 30 casts before catching anything. My brother and I would often go out to fish in the middle of the lake, sometimes chatting softly, sometimes silent. There was one part of the fishing process that bothered us though, killing the fish. I remember one trip early on when one of us landed a beautiful rainbow trout. We got it into the boat. Dislodging the hook out of the mouth, however, took forever. So much so that there was fish blood smeared on our hands. It was still alive and flopping around the bottom of the boat. My brother and I took turns with the hunting knife, trying to kill it by knocking its head sharply with the hilt of the knife. We had seen adults do it so many times, and yet we couldn't seem to get it right. We weren't hitting it hard enough, and each hit we gave it hurt us at the same time. Adults had told us that fish don't feel pain, and yet it was clear when looking at it, gasp for breath and stare at us with fear, that it did. The fish was suffering. Finally, I seem to remember that I was the one that smashed its head strongly enough to kill it. We loved to catch fish. We loved to eat them. The killing was something I never figured out how to process. And then there's hunting. Now, I love the taste of caribou sausage, but killing one of those noble animals was difficult to come to terms with. Of course, this is a conflict that everyone has to mediate at some point. There is a strong sentiment amongst hunters that it is a good idea to kill what one eats. At the least, it's less hypocritical to personally know where the meat comes from. A friend and neighbor agreed to take us hunting for moose one year. My father got a license and we made plans for an early morning hunt. To avoid carrying a thousand pounds of fresh meat on our backs too far, the plan was to quietly boat along the shorelines of Lake Tyone for a few hours at dawn. Guns on our laps, my brother, father, and I sat in the boat, peering intensely at the forest that flows down to the water's edge. Mist floated across the glass still water as we poked along. The air was cold. None of us had gloves. I traded off putting one hand under my leg and then the other to warm them up a little. I didn't know what to expect if we saw a moose. The details of hunting were difficult to believe. The, you know, the killing seemed the simplest, not unlike target shooting, but the field dressing seemed hateful to me. Field dressing, it's a euphemism for rough butchery and cutting the bloody corpse into pieces small and light enough to carry to the boat. I couldn't imagine it. So instead I just braced myself to deal with it somehow the way I dealt with killing a fish, only harder. The floor and sides of the boat were cold from the water underneath. It felt warmer above as the sun rose and the mist dispersed. Our guide decided, that it was too late to find a moose, so we called it a day. He sped up the motor and we made our way home. The fresh wind hitting our faces woke us all up. And once the engine was loudly up at full speed, my father turned to me and quietly said, Thank God we didn't see one. Thank God. <laughs>